The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you can go to sign up for either of those newsletters at miningstocks.com. That's miningstocks.com. Or call my assistant in New York at 718 718- Four five seven fourteen twenty six. That's Claudio Bassi at seven one eight four five seven fourteen twenty six. I should also like to remind you that the best place to go to catch everything that I do is J Taylor Media. That's J A Y Taylor T A Y L O R Media dot com, and you can also follow me on Twitter under the handle J Taylor Media. Do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. We also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are Blue Gold Waters Technologies, Prophecy Platinum, Balmoral Resources, Golden Arrow Resources, and SGX Resources. I will make some more remarks about our sponsors and some other companies uh, that I uh, find very exciting in this environment, but uh, I want to leave some time now for some comments of my own on this monologue. So let's get into today's show right away. I've titled today's show, A Deflationary Depression is Bullish for Gold and Gold Shares. Well, the world economic system is in turmoil, and when economic turmoil ensues, freedom and liberty are most often thrown out the window. Which direction, though, will the markets take when, they're, when they are no longer free to operate is really open to debate. The bastardization of the global markets uh, by Ben Bernanke and Alan Greenspan before him, and of course a host of central planners around the world, none of whom believe in free markets, is inevitably leading the world into what I believe will be an economic hell. Unless uh, he has changed his mind and his views since we last spoke to him, one of my guests today, namely Ian Gordon, believes that the impending economic hell will be a deflationary depression that will make that of the 1930s look like child's play. Last time Ian was on the show, he insisted that there's no amount of quantitative easing that will change that picture. 
Why so? Well, simply put, Ian believes that current policies, which are really based on issuance of more and more debt faster and faster, are growing much faster than income. Hence, every time more quantitative easing, the deeper the debt hole that the policymakers dig us into. So rather than climbing out, we are digging ourselves deeper into debt and deeper into trouble. Well, if Ian is correct about deflation, then what kind of investments should we be focusing on? And that will be the main question on my mind as I speak to Ian later on at about 3.30 New York time today. A listener wrote to me last week to chastise me for comparing the United States to Nazi Germany. And although the listener did not leave his name... I want to thank him for writing because I do want to get more of this kind of discussion taking place. If you think there's something that is outrageous that is being said on this show, please don't hesitate to send us an email or call in even during the show uh, when something is being discussed. And you can call in at 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. But I I do want to... um, to read what this listener wrote to me, and we will be talking uh, to uh, to other guests today about this, and one in particular, Daniel McAdams from the Ron Paul Institute of Peace and Prosperity. But I do want to uh, to to respond to what this re- listener wrote to me. He said, and I quote: "Jay, your comments defining our existence as comparable or the same as Nazi Germany are offensive to anyone who actually lived." or was killed through those those times. You may not like what is going on now. I don't know anybody who does, but in the United States there is a there is racial tolerance and no lunatic in charge bent on global destruction. You do see the difference, I trust. I'm a hard asset believer, but drawing ridiculous comparisons does not help your or our credibility with people who are looking for wisdom or guidance. Do yourself a favor. Stick to mining analysis, end of quote. Well, as I was just saying, in the second hour of today's show, Daniel McAdams, the executive director of Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, will be here. We'll ask him if he sees comparisons between what's going on now and in Nazi Germany uh, back in those days. But in any event, I must respond to the listener to make a couple of points. First, I will concede that it may have been a bit of a stretch at this point in time to equate Nazi Germany with the United States. What may be more accurate at this point in time may be a comparison of the U.S. with the Weimar Republic because we are setting everything up now to pave the way for a dictator as bad or worse than Hitler, in my view. My thinking is that it is better to object to the laws that are being passed now that pave the way for the Hitler, uh, for the next Hitler, Uh, Better to object to them now. Indeed, it may already be too late as NSA continues to gather information, which it can use to blackmail any popular candidate who gets in the way of the agenda of NSA and the military-industrial complex, uh, which I believe very definitely uh, is in control of NSA. I believe the listener is naive, uh, and in fact he is a naive victim of propaganda and spying apparatus of the United States government that would have in fact made Hitler extremely envious. The mainstream media is totally in the hip pocket of NSA, the CIA, the Federal Reserve, and the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us about. And here we have to give Hitler some credit for the sinister characteristics of our own totalitarian government. As John Loftus noted on this show and in his book, the American Nazi secret, 
The U.S. relied heavily on Nazi thugs after World War II to bolster and build our own intelligence apparatus. Hitler's propaganda machine for its time was extremely adept given the lack of technology in the 1930s compared to what the CIA and NSA has to work with now. But Hitler did very much what our CIA and NSA does now, amplified by the mainstream media, and that is to disguise the evil that is being carried out by as a painless, humane, and most of all, good-for-all-of-us uh, kind of activity. Just as Hitler hid the gruesome activities of the Auschwitz and other camps, so too the United States government is doing the same thing with respect to our wars overseas, our drone attacks against American citizens, even who are killed without a trial. And of course, all the spying that is being carried out on you and me for your good and mine, right? Well, the listener says he finds it offensive that I would compare our country and government with that of Hitler. Quite frankly... With all due respect to my listener, I could care less if that statement is offensive, if in fact it is true. There are so many similarities about how our government lies about the wars that we engage in. Think about Iraq and the hundreds of thousands of innocent men and women that were killed in that war. Or in the sterile drone attacks and total uh, out-of-control collateral damage done to innocent people in that process. Or think about how our establishment rounds up black kids in inner cities for minor drug uh, charges and with no chance of defending themselves and jails them for the sake of private corporate profits. During Hitler's day, there were millions of Germans who were kept down on the mushroom farm, just like my listener is being kept ignorant about what is really going on in the ma by our mass media. The Germans also would have found the truth about what was taking place at Auschwitz and elsewhere in their country at that time offensive. And so to keep its activities from being offensive so that the evil could not so that the evil could in fact be carried out without the knowledge of the people people and their objection, Hitler, just like our own government, decided its people uh, it really deceived its people into thinking its killing fields were either not happening or if they were happening, it was being carried out in a painless way and for the good of the nation. Let me give you an example of what Hitler did uh, to the Jews in the Second World War in Auschwitz. Uh, this is taken from William Shire. He's a very well-known, very famous, uh, since deceased, war correspondent during the Second World War. And he was the author of The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Based on eyewitnesses of Hitler's gas chambers, here is what he wrote in his book. Quote, The gas chambers themselves at Auschwitz and the adjoining crematoria viewed from a short distance, were not sinister-looking places at all. It was impossible to make them out for what they were. Over them were well-kept lawns with flower borders. The signs at the entrance merely said, in large capital letters, BATHS. The unsuspecting Jews thought they were simply being taken to the baths for the delousing, which was customary at all camps, and taken to the accompaniment of sweet music. For there was light music an orchestra of young and pretty girls all dressed in white blouses and navy blue skirts, as one survivor remembered, had been formed from among the inmates. While the selection was being made for the gas chambers, this unique musical ensemble played gay tunes from The Merry Widow and Tales of Hoffman. Nothing solemn and somber from Beethoven. The death merchants at Auschwitz were spritingly and merry tunes, straight out of Viennese 
and Parisian operetta. To which music recalling as it did happier and more frivolous times, the men, women, and children were led into the bathhouses where they were told to undress preparatory to take a shower. Sometimes they were even given towels. Once they were inside the shower room, and perhaps this was the first moment they may have suspected something was amiss, for as many as 2,000 of them were packed into the chambers like sardines, making it difficult to take a bath. The massive door was slid shut, locked and hermetically sealed. Up above, where the well-groomed lawn and flower beds almost concealed the mushroom-shaped lids of the vents that ran up from the hall of the deaths, orderlies stood ready to drop into them the amateurist blue crystals of hydrogen cyanide. End of quote. Now, if you think your U.S. government is being honest with you, let me ask you, why do you think we are not being told of hundreds of thousands of Iraqi people who were killed by our bombs and collateral damage when we treated them to shock and awe? Why do you think the U.S. government didn't want you to know that you are being spied upon and that everything you say and do is being packed away in a data storage site so that if and when you get out of line, they can take some secret about you and shut you up and get you to cooperate? Now, if you believe your government is being honest with you, then I have a bridge to sell you that connects Brooklyn to Manhattan. I would invite my listeners out there to send me an email to questions for Taylor, that's questions number four Taylor at gmail.com to tell me what the American government does not lie about. Just give me one example of anything our government says that you can trust. I'd like to hear what that is. The most important thing for all of us is a truism spelled out in Adam Hochschild's book uh, called To End All Wars. He says that, and I quote, once government become a captive of wars they purport to control, they turn next to their own people, end of quote. I have no doubt that that, that is exactly what's going on now, and that the major media, which is in, uh, in on the deal, is an important part of the propaganda machinery that is keeping people like my listener down on the mushroom farm, where they will be tranquilized into passivity, thus allowing the evildoers free to continue to rape and pillage not only foreign citizens, but now increasingly Americans, through increasing economic chaos and blackmail as we Americans are now being spied upon in order to keep us in line with the status quo. As to the listener's uh, suggestion that I should do myself a favor and stick to mining analysis, I think that is a bit naive. If you live in a land where markets for goods and services as well as free speech and ideas are no longer free because the rule of law has been thrown out by a bunch of powerful thugs, who want to get you to think that uh, it is less important than focusing on market fundamentals of individual stocks, to be oblivious to the emerging fascist dictatorship in the United States would completely be irresponsible, in my view. But the listener that complained and suggested that I should only care about mining analysis may be pleased that in just a couple of minutes after the break, Geologist and mining analyst extraordinary Brent Cook will be stopping by to talk about some of the issues you need to be aware of when you buy mining stocks. So after the next break, I will uh, be talking to Brent Cook, followed by Ian Gordon and then Daniel McAdams in the second hour. And I will talk a bit uh, during the second hour about the gold and silver share markets uh, and about what I think uh, some of the companies are that, that I'm really excited about. Of course, as Alana Mercer pointed out on this show some time ago, if government takes our property 
which they do through taxation without representation, then it is only a matter of time before our very lives are at stake, which once again is why I feel compelled to go beyond the topic of simply picking stocks. Well, don't go away. I'll be right back with Brent Cook after the break to help us pick up some good gold and silver mining stocks. So don't go away. I'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group metals, nickel, and copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. Some things never go out of style. In the gold business for over 100 years, high-grade Canadian gold discoveries have been in vogue amongst investors. Balmoral Resources has continued to deliver high-grade results from a series of new discoveries in Quebec. If you're looking to upgrade your portfolio in the fall with some golden highlights, learn more about Balmoral at balmoralresources.com. Balmoral trades on the OTCQX under the symbol B-A-L-M-F and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol B-A-R. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again geologist and mining investment analyst Brent Cook. Uh, well, well, I'm sorry if I, I did feel compelled to discuss the dark topic matter of the last segment, but the truth is our freedoms, I believe, are being taken away from us. And as Ron Paul has said, if we have our freedoms and liberty, we will be prosperous. If our freedoms and liberties are taken away, we will be facing a future of poverty. What I have always believed uh, is that we need to face reality as best we can. We need to take off our rose-colored glasses and put on spectacles with extremely clear lenses in them that help us to see the world as it really is, even if at times uh, we don't like what we see. And when it comes to investing in mining stocks, I don't think there's anyone that I know who has a more clear vision of the realities of mining economics than Brent Cook. So welcome, Brent. Really good to have you back. Well, thank you, Jay. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, uh, it really is an honor to have you back because I know that you, are, uh, that you really do make a, a, a real strong effort to tell it like it is. Uh, otherwise, uh, you wouldn't have so many people mad at you for not liking their properties. <laughs> 
Yeah, there are a few people that don't like what I have to say, but I think, you know, like you say, but, it comes down to reality, especially when you get to mining exploration where, you know, it's a tough business, and the better or quicker you can figure out if and what the fatal flaw is, the more money you're likely to save or at least not lose. Absolutely. And, you know, Brent, I think that people actually, uh, while it may not make you popular with some people in the short run, in the long run, people respect you and uh, your currency goes up as a result of your honesty. So uh, I just want to put that out there because I believe it's I believe it's very true. And, of course, that's why I like to have you uh, and a select uh, one or two others on this show from time to time to talk about this area. So before we get started, I'd just like to make a couple of points. And one is that all of you out there should go to exploration insights.com that's Brent Cook's website explorationinsights.com and there you can go to sign up his for his uh, service that's for sure but there's also a lot of stuff there that's free and interesting and I think very important if you are an investor in the mining sector so please do yourself a favor and go to explorationinsights.com would also like to mention that I listened to an interview I did with Brent back on October 9th of last year uh, and uh, and I found that to be very very uh, interesting uh, and as always, very insightful from Brent. Uh, and so I would encourage all of you to go back and listen to that. You can listen to it. It's archived, as all our shows are, at the Voice America uh, business channel uh, on my website there. Uh, or you can, of course, download from the iStore and listen to it, as you can do with all of our shows, including this one. So, uh, But anyway, Brent, uh, I want to start out by talking uh, or have you talk about uh, a talk that you just gave at the, to the Nevada Geologic Society in Reno, and I understand that that really had to do with the disconnect between the information the financial community wants and what the exploration, uh, let's say, yeah, the financial community, what they want to hear, and, and what the rock guys, the geologists, the exploration people want to know about a project. Could you explain the, the difference, the disconnect there between the interests of the two parties, both of which are essential to making projects go forward and, and work? Yeah, it's an interesting topic. I, you know, I started my life as a, off as an exploration geologist, worked with most of the major mining companies as a consultant, and then eventually hooked up with Rick Rule and became his analyst for a while. And from that perspective, I got to see what the money guys expect versus what the geology, um, you know, scientific guys expect. And mm-hmm. basically, there's there's a disconnect or a difference in understanding of what's going on. I think that leads to a lot of money being wasted and, and a lot of projects not moving forward. And that basically comes from, for the most part, the financial side of the equation don't really understand the scientific processes behind the actual discovery, what goes into making a discovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's science, and the testing of ideas, retesting of ideas, and, and moving forward along those lines. So that takes time, and that's something mm-hmm. that a lot of the financial side don't have. On the mm-hmm. geology side, they tend to get um, wrapped up in, you know, a, a program or a discovery or an idea, and don't recognize sometime down the road when it's time to drop that because it's mm-hmm. not going to make money; it doesn't stand a chance. Mm-hmm. So I think the disconnect there uh, needs to be resolved, and if that's resolved, we'll have much better success in finding new deposits, and we'll have much better success in the financial guys getting the reward they want want and mm-hmm. uh, geologic side of things getting the work done that needs to be done intelligently yeah well, what stimulates or what drives that yeah i mean i'm asking you because i come more from the financial side you're more from the from the science side what drives a geologist i mean a geologist uh, i know enough about geology to know that 
guys have theories about how Mother Earth evolved or about how certain deposits or certain geological formations came about and, and how minerals might or might not be there. So is a lot of it uh, ego? Is a lot of it somebody has a theory, they want to test it and maybe make a name for themselves? What drives geologists then to want to uh, to push projects further than they should with good common sense? Well, I think, you know, it, it's geology, it looks like exploration geology is a way of life more than anything because you're uh-huh. out there in the bush living in rough places and such and you're formulating concepts, if you will, as to where mineral deposit could be based on very limited data from the surface. So you're projecting a little bit of information to depth. And in reality, you know, Mother Nature has been very generous. She makes or has made lots of geochemical or geophysical anomalies, and that's just how the Earth evolves. So there's literally millions of potential sites where mineralization and economic ore body could occur. Mm-hmm. But you know, one out of 10,000 of those, or one out of 1,000 anyway, actually hosts a mineral deposit. So as a geologist, what they need to do as quickly as possible is find the fatal flaw in their theory and move on to the next one. If you cannot find a fatal flaw, then you continue with it. And the problem oftentimes is that their ideas are not based in the fundamental economics behind building a mine, you know. When I go look at a project, I always start from... I pick up a rock. I start from the end product. What's this mine going to look like if they're successful? And then work it backwards as to how much it's going to take to drill it, how much it's going to take to mine it, to process it, the capital, and determine from that what I need to see in the early drill results to see if it's mm-hmm. working or not. And that, mm-hmm. if you do that, I think you'll you're a lot better off um, and will be more successful in finding deposits and in. You know, for investors who, who's listening to this, uh, recognizing when to get out of a, a company because it's not. Right. That's really the key. That's what I spend most of my time doing is recognizing what is going wrong in a project earlier than everybody else. Yeah, and getting out before the stock collapses. Well, what happens? I mean, I'm sure the I know the financial guys want to know what's going on sooner rather than later. Do they sometimes push geologists to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do? They throw money at them and say, go at it, or, or give us some good results. I guess they want to have good results to drive the stock price. Most of these guys, a lot of these guys anyway, aren't really concerned about the long-term uh, mine-making potential. They want to see their shares go up and then get the heck out of there, right? Isn't that, isn't yeah, that what the financial guys are about? Precisely, and that's the disconnect I'm talking about. They're, they're jumping in. To a large degree, not everyone, but a large degree, yeah. hoping for short-term success. So what that forces the scientific side of things, the geologists to do, is go out and pick up a property that deep down we know, you know does not have much of a chance of succeeding, but you can pull some good drill holes out of it. And so that, you know, that's just wasted money, in my view, and not the I'm right sure. way to approach it. It's not going to benefit anyone down in the long run. And right now, as you've seen, these major miners are in big trouble in terms of discovering and developing new high-margin economic deposits. We're finding fewer and fewer of them, and we're, we're going to see the gold production start dropping off here pretty radically soon, I think. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. So uh, I, I guess probably what you, a big part of what you do then, Brent, is you, you know a lot of these people, and so you probably have in your own mind, I'm not going to ask you to comment on this, but I know in your own mind you know who the guys are who can kind of grasp the economics quickly uh, and, and tr- you know, get out of a project and go into something more promising. I'm sure that's, that's a big part of your equation. That's, that's a big part of it is you know, recognizing 
when to bail, when to get out of something, and when to pursue it as well. I mean, yeah. the other part is if your you know, results continue to confirm your thesis, mm-hmm. stick with it. Yeah, well, that's a you know that's one of the reasons that I'm I'm sure your your letter is so valuable is because you have that experience from both sides of the equation. So that's it's a good insights there, Brent. Thank you for that. I know I know that you just hinted about it now uh, a second ago about the mining industry being in big trouble. Uh, you sent me an email. You said this gold mining industry is in trouble. All uh, all in sustaining costs exceed the gold price overall. Um, now, we are starting to see and have so- seen some significant write-downs. Do you think this is just the beginning, Brent? you think there's a lot more to go? I mean, you know, some of the big guys have written down some big projects already. Yeah, well, this is something we talked about in, in my last two newsletters. Um, we've seen in the gold industry alone $50 billion written off, I think, about $20 billion this year. Wow. And we're going to see a bit more, but I think we're coming you know, kind of towards the end of that. They're hoping to clean this up by the end of the year. But the next thing we're going to start seeing is a reduction in resources and reserves because um, what the companies are doing is starting to high-grade their deposits, meaning they're pulling out the best of it and leaving the rest. Uh, What that does, in effect, is sort of sterilizes the remaining ounces. And this is really important. And there's, I'm going to offer something to your subscribers on my website. Just go there and contact me. I'll send them that letter that goes into details. Um, But... It's, it's going to be a serious issue because what used to, say, XYZ company had, you know, 100 million ounces on the books, with the lower gold price plus high grading, there's going to decrease the stated reserves by quite a bit. And I think we're going to start to see this happen over the next year or so unless gold prices come back dramatically real quick, which I don't see happening. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, in fact, I just was uh, reading a, uh, an analyst from J.P. Morgan, I think uh, Gregson, his name is, is talking about, um, I'm sure he's not talking about Canadian penny stocks, you know, when he says low-cap stocks. He's saying, we think the whole sector has been beaten up so much that there is deep value there. I think we have seen the last of the underperformance of small caps, end of quote. Now, as again, I don't think he's talking about the little expiration companies that are selling at 10 cents a share. I think he's probably talking about companies that have 100 100 million and up market cap, a billion and up market cap. Probably those are the smaller mining companies in his universe. But let's say that we got back up to $1,800 or $1,900. Would that put things back? Really, would some of these projects that are being written down, they'd start to look at opening them up again? Yeah, I, I have no doubt about that, but here's, here's the, the problem we face is that as the gold price went up, so did all our input costs, our labor costs, infrastructure mm-hmm. costs, capital costs, so the margins didn't increase that much. And that's really the problem we face is with an increasing gold price, more than likely we're going to see an increasing in input costs, base metal, you know, commodity prices. and that, Sure. Which gets back to what my real thesis is, and I'm convinced of this, is that all you need to do in this sector is identify early on the high-margin discoveries that down the road these companies are going to have to buy. Recognize mm-hmm. those early and stick with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you really do uh, really do want to look at exploration companies uh, with managements that are good at exploration without any sort of pretense of being producers, right? Uh, for the most part. There's two, those are yeah. two completely different mindsets. Building exactly. a mind is a lot different than finding one. Exactly. You know, uh, last time you were on, I just mentioned a couple of names that you that you seemed to like uh, quite a bit at the time. 
uh, and I just ask you with a minute or so left here what you think of them now. Eurasian Minerals, Duluth Metals, Lydia International, and Virginia Mines. Do you like them all yet? Okay, that's a good point. And this is something, you know, people hear me talk about something and may or may not buy them, but we follow these as it goes along. And we sold Duluth Metals uh, for a small profit. Uh-huh. And what else is it? Lydian we sold. Um, unfortunately, fantastic deposit, but for the time being, the government has made a move to uh, move on the deposit of some sort. So we're waiting mm-hmm. to see how that turns out. The other Eurasian uh-huh. minerals, a great prospect generator, lots of work going on. And Virginia is probably the best gold royalty in the business. Mm-hmm. What sort of uh, royalties are they pulling now? Well, it's on the Eleanor deposit, which Gold Corp is building. This is the deposit they found, uh, Virginia found. And they're going to get between 25 and 3.5% royalty on what's going to be about a 600,000 ounce a year uh, producer. Well, that sounds pretty good. Uh, and their sure. share prices are probably down. The share price is probably down from its highs, I would get, I would imagine. It's down some, not as much as you'd think because it's such a yeah. solid company. <laughs> yeah, and I think in general, a lot of times the project generators or are, are, um, the royalty companies do not suffer as much in down markets as some of the pure exploration companies, right? That's right, for sure. Yeah. Well, I really want to thank you again, uh, Brent, for being with us. And, uh, again, people can go to your website, and you are going to send out uh, a special or some information. What was it again? Yeah, if, if someone's interested, just contact me via the website, and I'd be happy to send along uh, last week's letter, which discusses this, this issue of downgrading resources through high grading, a deposit, and what's oh, that very- for the industry. Very, very good. Very important information. That's explorationinsights.com, folks, if you want to go there. I would urge you to do so. If you invest in the mining sector, go there uh, and uh, gain some wisdom from Brent Cook, who's been around this business, well, quite a while, Brent, you and I both, but you have uh, you are the scientist and, and the financial guy, so thanks very much for being with us. Folks, don't go away because I'll be right back with Ian Gordon. Now, if you think Ben Bernanke's printing money guarantees that we're going to have hyperinflation, well, Ian Gordon doesn't think so. He thinks that exactly the opposite is true. And if that's true, some of Brent Cook's issues may not be uh, as important. That is, his concerns about cost. Brent just talked to us a moment ago about how important it is, uh, or how he sees metals prices and other input costs going up faster than the gold price. Well, in Ian Gordon's scenario... And in the 1930s, and when we've had a deflationary depression, the opposite has been true. In fact, it was even true after Lehman Brothers' decline. We did see the margins for gold mining projects go up as the real price of gold rose. So uh, Ian Gordon's going to have that and a lot more to talk about. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Ian Gordon. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine, operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. 
SGX Resources is an exploration gold company with multiple advanced exploration projects in the Timmins Gold Camp. Recent high-grade intersections at SGX's Tully Deposit include 14 meters at 20.1 grams per ton and 17.6 meters at 11.1 grams per ton. The deposit is currently more than 600 meters along strike with a depth of up to 250 meters and remains open in all directions. SGX Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange with the trading symbol SXR. Visit our website at www.sgxresources.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me an old friend going going back more than a decade now, Ian Gordon. And for those of you who are not familiar with Ian, uh, he is uh, a renowned economic forecaster and author of the Long Wave Analyst newsletter. Uh, He's a student of economic and investment history. uh, And his unique analysis of the cycle has earned great praise from many many notable sources, including some exceptionally uh, successful, well-known investment managers. Ian is a, a consultant to many mining companies, has been over the years, uh, and has assisted many mining companies raising capital. In fact, uh, Ian was probably the first one that I know of uh, uh, from Vancouver back in the late 90s uh, to start investing in junior gold mining uh, companies and, and he really did it right at the right time. His uh, his timing was was absolutely perfect because he was able to go in and buy extremely good uh, companies, extremely good exploration targets anyway, uh, at, at next to nothing. So he's done very well for himself and for his clients over the year, over the years. Welcome, Ian. It's good to have you back. Well, thank you for having me again, Jay. Good to have you. You lucky guy. You're up there in uh, up there in Vancouver or White Rock, gorgeous, south of Vancouver. Gorgeous weather. Yeah. Yeah, and a God's country, as you call it. Yeah. So you look, you look across the bay there. What is that? That's not God's country. Well, no, that's the United States, Jay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I thought that we were anyway. Let's not get into that. We got enough of that. Let's get into some of the more serious things that that we're that we have to talk about. Uh, your work is, uh, you know, the long wave cycle. It's uh, uh, sometimes referred to as a Kondratiev cycle, I guess. Uh, you carve this up, and I think very insightfully, uh, the Kondratiev cycle or the long wave into spring, summer, fall, and winter, and that each of those seasons are about approximately 15, 20 years or so long, and each of them have a certain characteristic. Allow Some things you can do very well by investing during that time frame, and other things not so well. Uh, just tell our, our listeners, those of uh, those who are out there who don't know you, are not that familiar with your work, just explain briefly the spring, summer, fall, and winter, and what is good in each of those seasons to invest in? 
All right. Um, well, really, the, the four seasons in the long wave uh, cycle are, um, I think, quite appropriately uh, uh, named. Uh, spring uh, is the rebirth of the economy. And the spring in the present cycle uh, started in 1949 and lasted until 1966. So it's the rebirth following the deflationary depression stage of the cycle, which is the winter portion of the cycle. And then you go into summer, which is always the inflationary period of the cycle. And we're in the fourth cycle right now. Um, And the reason that summer is always an inflationary period or has always been an inflation period is because there's always been a war that's been financed through money printing, and that's led to inflation. So... Uh, in the first cycle, it was the War of 1812. The second cycle was the U.S. Civil War. The third cycle was the 1418 World War. And the fourth cycle was the Vietnam War. And so you always have inflation in the summer. And then you get into autumn, and I call that the feel-good season, And uh, simply because the autumn period of the cycle is always the cycle when you have the biggest speculation in stocks, bonds, and real estate. So you have a massive speculation occurring in those three medium, and also you have a huge buildup in the in debt that occurs during the autumn of the cycle. And then winter is the cycle when the debt has to be paid back. So the, it's the process of wringing out the debt from the system uh, so that the economy can recover and move forward into spring. So if you look at those four seasons, there are always appropriate uh, investments that make make you money and there are inappropriate investments that will lose you money so for example in the spring being the rebirth of the economy uh, the best investments to get into are stocks and uh, in real estate then you move into some of the inflationary period of the cycle well stocks don't perform well but uh, things like gold uh, commodities and so on perform exceptionally well and bonds perform exceptionally badly because you have this massive inflation occurring, so you have very high interest rates following the inflation. So uh, gold, uh, silver, and all commodities do very well in the summer. Then you go into the autumn. Well, that's as I said, was the feel-good period when you have the biggest speculation in stocks, bonds, and real estate of the entire cycle. So obviously those three medium do exceptionally well, and gold uh, does very poorly. For example, in the present autumn, gold topped at $850 in 1980 at the end of the inflationary summer and bottomed in 1999 or 2000 at $250, whereas the stock market, the Dow went from um, 777 in August 1982 to $11,750 by 2000, January 2000. So that big bull market was akin to the Roaring Twenties bull market of 1921-29. When that bull market came to an end, and we say it came to an end in 2000, because that was the the big speculative uh, period in the cycle when you had that massive infusion of money into dot-coms, huge speculation in the NASDAQ, and so on, uh, that peak should have ushered in the winter and the payback period for debt, but uh, the uh, at this time around, the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world have done a, a, jo- a major job in trying to uh, curtail winter, to try and stop winter sort of taking hold of the economy. And so we've had a down from in the stock price from 2000 to 2002, then a rally because interest rates were brought down 
essentially to 1%. Uh, and so you had the rally into 2007, and then you had it down from 2007 to 2009. Interest rates again being brought down now at this time to essentially 0% to try and keep uh, things, uh, the stock market uh, going and keep the economy going because one of the big sort of indications of wealth for people is the our stock prices. Right. Yeah, right. And uh, Ian, I, I just thought of something I want to ask you. You said in the summer uh, is the season when wars abound, right? Uh, did I hear you correctly on that? They don't abound, but I mean, there's always been a war uh, that's sort of repeated in the summer, and that war has always been financed by... Um, uh, money printing. So, as I said, the first summer was the War of 1812, the United States against Britain and Canada, and then second uh, summer was the Civil War, the U.S. Civil War, and the printing of the greenbacks and so on. Uh-huh. And the third uh, summer was the 1418 War, when uh, essentially everybody went off gold and went into a paper money system. And the fourth summer was the Vietnam War. Yeah. Well, now we, uh, the United States seems to be at war with almost everybody. Uh, I mean, we are, we're in 140 different countries. We go into the Middle East and change regimes, and it's, we're spending huge amounts of money. The United States is spending huge amounts of money, but this is the Kondraty of winter. How does that play out? Well, I think, uh, unfortunately, the U.S. is going to get its come up, and so I think, uh, you know, that this, they've held this thing together, really, as I say, since 2000. If you go back to the long... The last long wave winter, which occurred at the stock market peak in 19, or started in stock market peak in 1929, the worst of that winter was over by 1933. And at that mm-hmm. period, at that time, uh, the Dow Jones had dropped uh, 90% in its value by actually by 1932. U.S. unemployment had reached a peak of 25%. You had uh, U.S. banks, you had 10,000 bank failures occurring between 1929 and 1933. Uh, U.S. GDP dropped by 45%. So the worst was over in those uh, three years following the 1929 uh, stock market peak. Uh, here we are 13 years on, and all we've been adding uh, to the, the debt problem, and that's what um, is, is the issue, is more debt, so that eventually uh, the whole thing is going to collapse. Uh, the house of cards is going to come tumbling down. We're going to go into the greatest deflationary depression that the world has ever, ever seen, and I'm absolutely convinced of that. And um, because of the overwhelming debt that's been taken on, the fiat money system is just contributing to a massive, massive issue in the economy. Well, Ian, what a lot of people would say, the Keynesians would say, is that shows you that Keynesian economics works. We've been able to delay this painful deflation uh, to the extent, like you say, it took only a few years in 1929 to 1933. Now we're 13 years, and the people that are, uh, you know, the policymakers of our day, the Keynesians say, see there, it works. And I had, um, you know, somebody writing me a nasty letter, and I'm going to talk about it at the end of today's show, chastising me for being a doom and gloom guy, for believing what you're saying, that we're going to go down, that we're going to get our comeuppance because of the way we're mistreating the rest of the world, the way we're printing money and going into debt. Uh, and, and, you know, the establishment has been able to get people like this guy who contacted me to, they've conned them into believing. So 
how are you so sure that ultimately, and I'm not arguing with you, I agree with you, but how do you make the point then that it's not going to be different this time, that, that Keynesianism cannot prevail? Well, Jay, actually, you know, I think I think the the Keynes followers of today misrepresent uh, what Keynes actually said. And mm-hmm. Keynes basically said that uh, you you don't print money in the good times, mm-hmm. but you print it in the bad times, right? To, to try and get the economy going again. Unfortunately, once the U.S. went off gold in 1971, there's no no reason for them basically to stop printing money. They printed money absolutely ad infinitum so yeah. that even in the good times, in the, even in the inflationary uh, 70s and in the period you know, from 1980 to 2000, those really good times, they've just contri- been printing money when they really didn't have to. The economy would have taken care of itself. So all that money printing has led to a massive debt, huge debt. The U.S. debt is now approaching $17 trillion. And by the way, going into the last economic uh, long-wave winter, the U.S. was the world's largest creditor nation. Here it is today, the world's largest debtor nation. So it's, mm-hmm. it's basically uh, facing a, a crisis that's uh, going to be oh, uh, going to overwhelm Bernanke's power to... Uh, Save the 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 economy, and I guess that's why Bernanke wants out because he can see it. Anybody should be able to see it. The whole thing is teetering on the brink of a, of an absolute catastrophe here, and um, it's and really, and we've written several times. It's the debt, stupid. And we were writing that in two thousand two thousand and one, and you know, paraphrasing uh, Bill Clinton when he was running for the presidency the first time when he was referred to. The economy, it's the economy, stupid, too. And, of course, he won the election on that sort of premise that, you know, the economy was in the doldrums. And, and so we focus on the debt. The debt is the thing that's taking down the world. You only have to look at Europe to see yeah. uh, the kinds of repercussions of the, building up this massive debt uh, problem. You can see countries like Greece, Portugal, Spain, and so on, uh, you know, where you've got youth unemployment in in Greece, I think it's 66%. The total yeah. unemployment is 27%. I mean, that's a depression. Yeah, and Spain has it bad, too. Uh, you're, uh, Portugal, where my wife is from, lots of places. And, and But uh, you don't have to look overseas. You can look at the U.S. as well. I think the statistics that were given by our government are phony. We're going to have John Williams on here uh, following David Stockman later in August uh, on the 27th to talk about those issues. But, Ian, I, I think that you would certainly agree that we've never really come out of uh, out of the recession uh, of 2008. Well, I, I I certainly agree. I mean, yeah, we're being given fed phony numbers. You know, everything's uh, trying to make uh, things appear much better than they really are. And um, you know, and there's a reason for that is that uh, you know you need to get people spending because animal spirits. Keynes you know, called it animal if, spirits. If you can tell people everything's good, if you can keep the stock market nice and high, everybody sees those stock prices, sees the Dow at record prices, so they think that that tells them that everything is all right. And yeah. because they have money in the stock market, they're seeing you know their portfolio values growing uh, with the with the growth in the in the stock prices and so on. So 
they start to feel all right and they start to spend money which they should be spending because everybody should be hunkering down for the really, really rotten times that are, are approaching. Yeah, and what's ignored, of course, is the fact that we have a record number of people on food stamps. Our number of people employed is uh, is continues to decline from 2008, from 2002. Uh, so you know the the real economy is really sucking wind. We it's just a it's just a sad thing. And of course the uh, the Wall Street guys continue to get richer. Government continues to get richer and bigger. I look at it as if it's a, a, a parasitic sort of mechanism, uh, organism, organism, if you will, that is uh, that it's on its final legs. I'm afraid. But you know one of the things, Ian. Uh, deflationists like yourself, well, not like yourself, but other deflationists, uh, I'm thinking Gary Schilling, who's been on this show, I'm thinking uh, Robert Prechter, uh, believe that the dollar will remain strong, and if we have a strong dollar that is strong relative to other currencies, at least, uh, Prechter thinks relative to gold even for a while, that we'll be able to continue the military-industrial complex, be able to continue to beat the hell out of people around the world and force them to take the dollar uh, is it a, a, a catch-22 thing, though? You know, like if the dollar remains, if the dollar crashes, then don't we get inflation as a result? Well, no, because I think the dollar is the last bad currency standing, mm-hmm. uh, simply because it is the reserve currency. And, uh, you know, China's trying to sort of negate that uh, situation by uh, essentially doing trade deals with, with countries where they... Uh, swap their own currencies for the goods that they purchase so that uh, th- these kind of dr- deals have been done with uh, Brazil, China, mm-hmm. Brazil, China, even Australia, uh, obviously Russia, Iran, and so on. Iran, so that yeah. slowly the U.S. is being squeezed out as the reserve currency. You know, the, the reserve currency has always got, always been the, the greatest creditor nation, the biggest creditor nation has always held that status as, as controlling the reserve currency, and the U.S. is fighting hard, and that's why many of these wars that the U.S. has been fighting are there to try and ex- uh, preserve the petrodollar, you know, as yeah. the uh, currency that has, you know, is paid for oil, and that's why, for instance, many people say that the war in Iraq was basically because uh, Saddam Hussein wanted to uh, accept euros for his oil. And the same with Iran. I mean, the pressure that's being put on Iran is because Iran is doing the same thing, is prepared to accept uh, euros and so on. And and uh, with Turkey, I think Iran's even been paid in gold. So mm-hmm. uh, everything is being done to try and uh, sort of, a lot of these countries are trying to sort of take away the the prestige that a, you know, a reserve currency holds and the absolute uh, Tremendous power that you have as uh, if you have a reserve currency, particularly during a fiat period, you know, because you can print to purchase. It's a great deal, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And, it's... And, and you can buy all the oil you want out of phony money. I mean, it's a lovely, lovely thing. Everybody else has to hold your dollars to go and buy the oil. Right, indeed, and uh, actually I'm glad you brought that up because I, I intend to talk to uh, Daniel McAdams of Ron Paul's Institute for Peace and Prosperity about the petrodollar. We talk about uh, global issues, but Ian, we only uh, my engineer tells me we only have three minutes left. It goes so fast with you, but let me ask you, uh, last time we talked, oh, anyway, one time recently when we talked, you talked about the possibility uh, or the probability of gold rising to 4,000 in the Dow, getting actually absolutely creamed to 1,000. 
Uh, you still see that that as a prospect, I, I and how soon? I absolutely live by that. I think uh, gold is just moving, and you know I've done a lot of work on these cycles, Jez. You know, and and you know these um, these big uh, long wave cycles are. Uh, you know, they they last for 20 years. So gold started its up move in in 2000. So we should get a 20 year up move. But within that 20 years, you have uh, long term cycles, which are you know uh, basically based on monthly prices, and you have four and a half long term cycles. So gold is just starting its fourth uh, long term cycle up mm-hmm. here. Uh, so the old high should be taken out and and uh, you know the nineteen thousand three hundred. We should see maybe on this move up. If we if we emulate the move that we saw on the third long wave cycle, which was two thousand and eight to two thousand eleven, this move up will take gold to thirty three hundred. Wow! And and the Huey to eight eight hundred and eighty in this move up. If we emulate the moves of two thousand and eight to two thousand eleven, um, and then you know the Dow is sort of being held together by all the uh, money printing, the you know quantitative easing uh, programs and so on. A trillion dollars a year is being fed into the U.S. banks to uh, basically prop up the dollar. But eventually, you know, because I'm talking about cycles, cycles are natural events. So that uh, you can try and sandbag and stop the tsunami with your sandbags, and you may hold mm-hmm. back... Uh, you know, the waves for a period of time, which Bernanke's been able to do since 2000. But eventually those waves swamp everything, and that's what's really going to happen to the U.S. stock yeah. market. It's going to reflect the realities of a massive depression that is fast approaching the entire world. Well, I'm um, sorry to hear that, Ian, but I, I'm afraid you're right. And my engineer, uh, I'm also sorry to hear what he says. We're out of time. Uh, so... Um, but we do have to ask you your website so people can follow your work. It's tell us again what it is. It's uh, longwavegroup.com. Longwavegroup.com. Go there folks. It's really important that you do. Uh, lots of good information there and I don't know that if you even charge anymore Ian you you're providing something for free. I do. It's it's um you know it's it's really a great deal if you're interested at all in cycles and what's going on. Think about what Ian has to say because it's really quite out of the ordinary, that's for sure. And that's what we want to do on this show is to bring you uh, truthful ideas that are not in the mainstream. Ian is one of the most outstanding guests we've had. Thanks, Ian, for being with us again. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back with Daniel McAdams. Uh, he's going to talk about American foreign policy in places like Iran, Egypt, and elsewhere. And we'll ask him about the petrodollar that Ian talked about and uh, also, uh, as Mr. Rickards talked about recently on this show. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Daniel Adams. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property, a large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. 
Some things never go out of style. In the gold business for over 100 years, high-grade Canadian gold discoveries have been in vogue amongst investors. Balmoral Resources has continued to deliver high-grade results from a series of new discoveries in Quebec. If you're looking to upgrade your portfolio in the fall with some golden highlights, learn more about Balmoral at balmoralresources.com. Balmoral trades on the OTCQX under the symbol B-A-L-M-F and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol B-A-R.